Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. Before we start today's show, how does the offer of free beer sound to you? We'd like to reward loyal Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast listeners with just that, free beer. Thanks to our friends at Beer52, the UK's most popular craft beer discovery club, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from all around the world. All you need to do is go to beer52.com forward slash wisdom and cover the £4.95 postage fee and the beers will be delivered to your doorstep. As well as the beers, you get a magazine and a snack as part of the deal. They send subscribers a crate of beer each month and there's a different theme for the beers each month. You're able to pause or cancel the subscription at any time. Anyway, on with the show. This week we'll be picking uh, when the stats do lie 11. 11 of retired test cricketers with batting averages of under 40 for the batsman and bowlers with averages of over 30. Doing that with me today is the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner, the editor-in-chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker, and the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon. Joe, there's a new magazine out today. What's in it? Um, yeah, it's out today, Thursday. Um, our cover story is an exclusive interview with Moen Ali on his return to the Test squad and probably the Test team, I'd have thought, but that's still up for grabs. Um, that's done by Taha Hashim, uh, one of the Wisdom.com writers, his first cover story for the magazine, which is always nice to see. Uh, and it's a really good interview with Moen, as you'd expect. Um, with Moen, nothing's ever really off the table. He's able to talk about some things outside cricket more comfortably than a lot of other cricketers are. Um, he talks about current uh, social situation, Black Lives Matter's um, protests. Um, he talks about his own sense of identity in the England dressing room and, and Owen Morgan's influence there. Um, and he talks about cricket too. He talks about wanting to come back and show his worth as a test cricketer because his reputation has definitely taken a, a dive as a test cricketer over the last uh, 18 months or so. Um, but he's still got huge amounts to offer 
England. And I'm looking forward to seeing him back in that test team as soon as possible. Absolutely. And there's also a feature from Crickviz picking test cricket MVP over the 21st century. How, how did that work? And that's got a few surprises in there as well, right? Yeah, it was a, uh, it was a kind of monster piece of work, really, uh, much of which was done by Crickviz. Their data scientist, Sam Green, has come up with the match impacts model, um, which basically, I mean, we should have Freddie or Sam on this show to talk us, talk us through it, really, but basically judges the impacts players have had uh, over, on a match, as opposed to just looking at the batting and bowling averages we're more familiar with. Um, so we've ended up with what we're calling Test Cricket's most valuable players, the MVPs of the 21st century. Uh, yeah, and I won't reveal too much here, but there are some interesting names. Not too many Englishmen feature. Um, no Sachin Tendulkar as well, which is obviously going to go down terribly in, in certain parts of the world. And uh, Kohli is not quite as high as you might have thought as well. But it's a really interesting piece of work. Um, it's always good working in collaboration with Crickviz. They, they bring up stuff that you wouldn't necessarily know or think about um, and Phil and I have written some nice editorial hopefully around some of those players and some interesting stories some interesting players who crop up that you wouldn't have necessarily thought uh, Jason Gillespie is one who uh, I think he's in the top 15 or something certainly around that position um, who didn't pick up many talent kits and uh, bowl well in all parts of the world so when you look at it through the, the prism of Crickviz's most valuable player impact index Gillespie's a player that comes out higher than you might have thought, whereas other players who score lots of runs on easy pitches or take lots of wickets on green pitches uh, might not come out quite as high as you would have thought. You see, you can buy a print copy at wisdom.com forward slash shop or as a digimag at wcmdigi.com. And right now, new subscribers to the digital version can get their first three copies for just £2.99 at bit.ly forward slash wisdom3. We, we are really close to the start of the summer. Um, this is actually our last lockdown weekly pod. Uh, next time we'll be back to previewing the test match. It'll be the normal weekly format. Before we crack on with our 11 today, a quick look at the week's news. 10 Pakistan players have tested positive for COVID-19, but their series against England is still expected to go ahead. Only one of the 10, Mohamed Rizwan, was expected to feature in the test leg of that tour. And there's hope that all 10 players will still travel to the UK shortly pending the results of further tests. England are very much on top of testing, however. All 702 tests conducted in the last three weeks on players, support staff, venue staff, etc. have come back negative and a demonstration of how seriously they're taking players' health at the moment. That Joffre Archer joined the squad late after a member of his household felt unwell. Both Archer and his household members tested negative for COVID-19. But Archer wasn't allowed to join the squad until he and his household members tested negative twice. West Indies are currently in the middle of an intra-squad friendly at Old Trafford. The Craig Brathwaite 11 versus the Jason Holder 11. Raymond Reefer, the left-arm seamer, took five wickets and 11 balls at one stage. Out Zari, Joseph and Shannon Gable were in and among the wickets. Slightly concerningly for West Indies, Jason Holder is yet to bowl the match and they're worried over one of his ankles. But he is thought to be fit at the start of the series. And finally, and perhaps most interestingly, Ireland quick Kim Garth has signed a contract with Victoria in Australia. And they said that she one day hoped to play for the T20 World Cup champions. Ben, obviously a massive blow to Ireland, but totally understandable from Garth's point of view. Yeah, I mean, she, she's, a, she's a brilliant player. I mean, she's already made an impact in Australia. She is one of the biggest uh, 
plus points to come out of this rookie development program that the IC deserve credit for setting up with the BBL teams. And uh, uh, she's a two-time BBL champion, and I'm sure she'll do very well for that that stadium over there. I think it's a sign of just how far ahead Australia are that you have these professional contracts at this level of the game already that that becomes a viable career choice and also shows how Ireland are kind of not through much fault of their own sort of just slipping behind in the ability to keep hold of these players. So I, in the they played in the 2018 T20 World Cup and then obviously didn't qualify for this event. But in the 2018 World Cup, when they got, I think when they got knocked out, it was uh, Laura's Lane and their captain just delivered sort of an impassioned speech about the, the lack of funding, the lack of pro contracts that they have. And uh, since then, while there have been some uh, steps taken by the Irish board to bring in some pro contracts, still they're finding uh, the ability to play against other teams just few and far between. They've played uh, three ODIs against New Zealand since then, and that's uh, about as far as it goes against the top eight teams, a couple of games against West Indies as well. Um, they haven't played against England in any format since 2010, which, considering how close they are, is a, a bit of a shambles, really. Um, and I think uh, while the IC have done some good work in sort of the development in cricket, and obviously Thailand, are in some ways, uh, an example of that, who beat Ireland to qualify for this Euro World Cup, and were you know one of the great stories to come out of that tournament. Um, the fact that Ireland haven't been, and that it's been an eight-team ODI Championship. That's what's really, that's almost six years back that decision was that meant that that's what's really set them back, I think. And is, that gap is just widening. And uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, this comes also, it's not that long ago that the Joyce has retired, that Claire Shillington retired, that Kira Metcalf retired. And see that lack of qualification for this tournament. I think the one, not positive, but this these contracts in Ireland are in place and they're not based on their performance. It's not based on World Cup qualification or things like that. So hopefully there is that sort of base level of support there. Right, let's let's pick our eleven. So a reminder of the criteria. The batsmen in the eleven must have finished their test careers and finished with an average of under forty. And the bowlers with a bowling average of over thirty. And the wicketkeeper must have a batting average of under thirty. First off, we're not going to change anything. We were talking before the show that we might not have got the criteria exactly right. Is averaging 40 with the bat the equivalent of averaging 30 with the ball, Phil? I would say probably not, based on what I've gone through over the last hour or so. Uh, I think it's probably more weighted in favour of the batsmen than it is the bowlers. I think there's quite a few reasonably average cricketers who have averaged over 40 over a reasonable amount of time. And categories within these categories as well. Uh, something that struck me when I was going through the list is how many uh, broadly top quality spinners, match-winning spinners, spinners who deserve their place in the overall story of Test cricket, whose averages are tottering around that mark, that 30 mark, and some really, really great, great spinners uh, who's, who average over 30. Um, so I would say that and I would say that the mark of 40 versus the mark of 30 for batsmen versus bowlers is weighted in favour of batsmen, I would say. Um, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been an interesting gig, this one. Uh, I've probably gone about it in a slightly eccentric way. Um, I chose to have a look at, the, at the, the rankings over the course of the last 50 years, going through various years here and there, whereas 
I imagine the other boys, slightly more Prakimfo-centric, have drawn up various lists and worked from those. Uh, but I, I'd be very surprised whatever criteria we've used if, if our lists are similar, really, because there's so much to choose from. Uh, and there is an undeniable element of personal preference in there as well. Yeah, you're, you're right. Your lists aren't similar at all. So we're going to have to require a fair bit of concession to get this done today. Uh, so that's a plea for help, if anything. Um, so let's start with the openers. Phil, who's opening the batting for you? Uh, Atherton and Stewart. I thought everyone would go Atherton and Stewart, but Joe didn't. Joe, who did you go with instead of one of those two? Uh, I went, well, I've got something to say on Stuart, but I, I went with uh, Marvin Aspatu as my uh, second opener. Uh, 16 test hundreds, six double hundreds. Uh, he had the, the infamous start to his test career where he got five ducks in his first six innings across four years, which actually, if he hadn't had that, I worked out, he wouldn't qualify for this, uh, for this team at all. So that's put him in the mix. I, I think he... Uh, he kind of held that Sri Lankan top order together for a very long period of time. And also on, on Stuart, this is kind of, I think he's a bit of a controversial selection for this because, so Stuart's in here as, a, as an opener, but half his matches, more than half his matches were as a keeper. So 82 of his 133 tests, he was a keeper and he averaged 35 with the gloves. As a pure batsman, which he'd be picked for this side, he averaged 47. So I don't think, if you're playing as a batsman, I don't think he really qualifies for this for this team unless he's your no, but he can't be a keeper batsman because he doesn't qualify on that. So mm. I don't really think Stuart qualifies. I personally, for me, the stats, the average has got Marvin Atapatu absolutely spot on. I think he is exactly a quality of player who averages just below forty. I think personally, I mean, the six double hundreds and averaging less than forty, that doesn't come unless there's a lot of low scores, not just at the start of your career. And if you look at his overall career numbers. There's an average of 95 against Zimbabwe in there, an average of 62 against Bangladesh. I think in a decade that was very good for batsmen, he made a lot of runs when the going was pretty easy and then basically went largely missing. Apart from that, that might be a little bit harsh <laughs> on him, but that's, that, that, that's how I basically see him in, in that the, uh, the average of 40 actually kind of got him right, whereas the six double hundreds paints a slightly misleading fit. On, on the Stuart thing, I, I do take your point that like, the, uh, uh, the, the, the reason why the average is less than 40 is a bit of a peculiar one but I think there will be generations to come who will look back at Stuart's average and sort of not realise just how good he was like in that in, I mean obviously there was the stat that he, no one scored more runs in the 90s which is obviously a bowler dominated de decade but as a specialist batsman he had one of the best averages in that decade as well when yeah it was so hard to score runs I think that yeah, he was a, a properly one of the world's best batsman for a 10-year period and yet has ended with an average of less than 40. I think it's quite quite a statistical quirk, even though there's the obvious reason for it. Yeah, if anything, he's, he encapsulates exactly what we're after. The stats do and did lie for Stewart, so I quite like to see him in the team. Um, and also, Atherton and Stewart averaged under 40, batting in the, the most difficult position in the most difficult era in the most difficult country to open the batting in the world. And Atipatu, I think, you kind of have to look at comparative averages over that period to other people who batted in Sri Lanka. Um, a lot of his teammates would have averaged over 40, comfortably over 40. Um, so are we happy with going with Atherton Stewart then? Well, I'm, I'm happy to lose Marvin, but I'm going to be, um, going to be <laughs> using this later on when it comes to late, later compromises. 
sorry, is it worth a word on Atherton that just uh, all the best bowlers of that period described him as the hardest to bowl at, despite him having an average of quite comfortably under 40, not just like, he's not one of these 39ers. He's uh, uh, yeah, the, 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 the batsman they mostly described as always one of the hardest to get out. And obviously, uh, and the other thing that always strikes me with Aston is, is how many 90s did he get? Phil, that's the kind of thing you'd know off the top of your head. Certainly made three because he made two 99s and a 94. There may have yeah. been one or two others in there, but Got certainly 90, three off the top of my head. Yeah. A 99 as well? Yeah, so two 99s and a 94. Oh, two 99, sorry, yeah. Um, and I just find it interesting to think about the stats line almost in two ways and that if all those, you know, if you gave an extra 20 runs over the course of his whole career, you'd have, you'd be right up there with England's most centuries makers, whereas he's uh, sort of down that list as well. Yeah, well, he's, Appleton's my captain in this, in this 11. Um, although, actually, as captain, he averaged more than 40. So, I don't know where that, where that <laughs> Um But, yeah, I think I will, we'll go with Appleton and Stewart then. Ben, who's batting three for you? Yeah, so I've got, I've got Shane Watson there, um, which is, I mean, he definitely underperformed, I guess, as a test cricketer. I think one of the things that I found interesting going through this list is I've generally gone in favour of people who have got poor conversion rates because I kind of figure that they actually uh, have contributed a lot more than the average kind of gives them credit for. I think uh, as a top order batsman and as a player of pace bowling, he was really, really top class and was a really key part of that Australian top order, but not just because he's only got, what, four test hundreds. He, uh, he falls some way down at this and also was a, a pretty handy bowler. I mean, remember that in the game where Vernon Philander made his debut, that crazy game, he got a brilliant five for, before Philander bowled Australia out for 47 or whatever it was. Um, but he was sort of messed around the order a bit, put down number six, which you'd think would suit him because he can sort of hit the ball a long way, but actually it was against quick bowling. He was really good um, and has a really good record at the top of the order, which Joe might think would disqualify him, but I think he's got a pretty, a pretty strong case. I think a lot, of, a lot of the people you guys have selected, I look at the list and I'm surprised that they averaged under 40 with a bat. I'm not surprised that Shane Watson averaged 35 with a bat at all. But my personal feeling is that if, uh, if an Australian batsman on those tracks with that quality and depth around him can only average 35 over a number of test matches, then it suggests that he's not much more than an average batsman. Now, all right, Watson was also a bowler. I appreciate that. Uh, but I'd be uncomfortable slipping Shane Watson into my top five or six, uh, considering the amount of amount of goes he had, amount of chances he had, and with Australian players as well, because of the conditions in which they play, and because of the setup where they they can express themselves. I think that has to be taken slightly into account. That said, I do have one Australian bolter in my top five as well, so maybe we'll come to that and crash it out after that. Phil, who did you have at three? Larry Gomes, the coolest cricketer of all time. Larry Gomes, 900s in 50-odd games. Uh, he was the, the slow heartbeat uh, Trinidadian um, left-hander in amongst all the mayhem in, in that all-conquering all West Indies side. He came in after Greenwich and Haynes. He held it together. Uh, Richards, of course. Richardson as well. Latterly coming in the middle order. Clive Lloyd. But Gomes, Gomes was a... Was, the sticky, the sticky tape in, in amongst all of that. He was the adhesive that held it all together. Um, stylish player in his own right and made big runs and important runs. Um, he made 600s against Australia, 600s against Lily and Thompson. Um, 
He never wore a helmet, never wore a hat either. Always like that. Um, and a kind of understated stylist in there at number three. Um, he averaged a tick under 40. Uh, so uh, he didn't get many runs in England. That's maybe where he, he might have fell down a little bit, although he made good runs in county cricket when he played. Uh, so his record in England may be held him back slightly, but his record away uh, elsewhere, and as I say, against Australia, where he made six of his 900s, um, he gets the nod for me at three. Yeah, he was, he was my number three. Way. Well, uh, if, you, also, if you're looking at kind of contribution to, to test cricket here, I mean, he was played 60 tests, part of an incredible side. He only lost six tests in his 60 test career. I mean, that's pretty astonishing for a player of, of any level. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was, what, he retired 87, 88, Phil? Yeah, around that. He was, he was certainly playing still in 86 against England when England went out there. So, yeah, it would have been maybe a year or so after that. So, I, I, I miss seeing him live, but he's definitely one of those players that whenever I think of the watching the old highlights of, of England-West Indies games, he, he's always there. And, yeah, as Phil says, unmistakably cool. So, mm. um, yeah. He gets the nod over Shane Watson every day of the week. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very happy on picking someone on the basis that they're cool. Oh, yeah, Joe, you did pick another West Indian. You picked Carl Hooper, right? Did he pick Carl yeah, Hooper? I'm not, I'm not yeah. budging on this one. This is one even, not even up for debate. Pure, um, pure regional bias. This Kent, <laughs> Kent blindness is what this is known as. So, yeah, so I, I obviously grew up just down the road from St. Lawrence. I saw a lot of Carl Hooper, particularly those Sunday league games. I just loved turning up, not knowing if he was going to kind of crawl to 20 or 30 balls and then run himself out or play the best innings you've ever seen. And that was, that was part of the fun. And he sort of did that in test cricket as well, although there weren't as many of the good days as, as there should have been. Played hardly any of the good days, Joe. Played 102 any. Yeah, I know. An average, what, 34? 36. 36, right in the heart of that side. Meant to be taking on that West Indies generation into, into the, the post-Richards era. And he flunked it. He flunked it. Let's be honest, One. he flunked it. One damning, so he averaged 26 from 25 tests to be Australia, which obviously is, is, not, is not good. Uh, interesting though, he averaged 46 as captain. So at the time when he was meant to be dragging that, what was quite a poor team along, he stepped up quite impressively for a couple of years. It was actually being a not, not, not performing well in a very good side that, um, that, that kind of held him back and kept his average uh, below, below 40. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> The Hooper Enigma, I'll never forget it when he made... He, he was, he'd been dropped a handful of times. He was on his last chance. And he came in to play a, a real crack Pakistan side. Wazim and Waka in their absolute pomp. And he creamed 170 on the first day and then made another 100 in the following test match. He made about four or 500 runs in the three-test series. Having been written off, and that just summed up Hooper, really. Like a runner ball on day one against that attack. And then after that, probably drifts drifted away somewhat and, and remains probably, of all of the cricketers that we're going to discuss this afternoon, he will be the single most frustrating name that we, that we come across because there was all the talent there. There was all the talent. And yet that record, I looked at him, I looked at him hard and I, you know, I, I was in love with him in the 90s to watch him as well. But all of that ability and all of that backing to have only managed to scrape an average of 35, 36. Can't, can't have it for me. Can't have it. Chuck in, Beautiful as he is. Beautiful chuck in 100-odd test wickets and... At 49. Catches at slip 49. Well. Uh, sure. And a beautifully uh, sort of uneventful bowling action. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, well, 
Ben? All right, we'll come back I've, to that. I've got Hooper. I've actually got him at five rather than at four. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what Joe says. I guess I'd add two things, which is that if this team was about impact without stats backing it up, he made impact in sort of two ways, sort of impacted your emotions, obviously, because even if it was a, a frustrating, <laughs> it was it was listing. And also just an aesthetic impact. I mean, obviously, a, just a, a beautiful cricketer to watch. And there were some brilliant innings dossed around there. One that I dug out and remembered when I was making my list was his 94 against England on the 98 tour in the game when Angus Fraser uh, took eight for in the first innings and West Indies were chasing 280 and were... 124 for five, and then he scores 94 to take him home uh, by three wickets. I think. I mean, so that the, he did, he did have his moments, obviously, which made the rest more rushing. I'm a yeah. I, I'm very keen on seeing Cole Hooper in this team. Okay, let's see. The thing is, all right, get it, get it. The no, stats don't lie in this instance, though, do they? They don't lie. If over 102 Test matches batting in the gun position in a good side and you're still averaging 36. The stats aren't lying. The stats are telling the truth there. The sample size is vast for Cool Carl, and the stats don't lie in the end. Anyway. Well, they're lying about his ability. Depends on the lie we're talking about. Yeah, but then others would say, well, ability comes in different forms. It's not about just being able to hit a cover drive and flick one through, through mid-wicket. There are other elements to ability. Let's, let's come back to Hooper in a bit. Um, there was another middle-order batsman that two of you picked. The Aussie you were talking about earlier, Phil. Kim Hughes. Yeah, well, Kim Hughes fits in in some respects to the to the Hooper category, but I just have more sympathy for Hughes. Hughes was a well, a kind of beautiful sixteen-year-old, a beautiful eighteen-year-old. He was captaining Australia at twenty-two. Um, he was an iridescent sort of talent uh, down in Perth, uh, and was compared to a young Richards, young Viv at the time was destined, so they said, to be one of the great players. Uh, and his fate was to resign the Australian captaincy in 1984-5, having made two runs in four, four innings against the West Indies. And he broke down in a press conference and resigned on the spot. That's, I'm afraid, his fate. But on the good days, uh, and there were a few, there were a few when he was batting at three and four for Australia, on the good days, there was no more attractive player out there. And he made some important runs in there as well. He made an amazing 100 in the centenary test. He made, <coughs> excuse me, made another superb sort of runnable 100 against England at Melbourne. Uh, he made good runs against, against the West Indies before that fateful final series. Uh, and he made it with great style and panache and all of that. So, so Hughes' story, obviously immortalised by... Christian Ryan's amazing book on him and that era. But Hughes was up against the whole force of, of Australian machismo, if you like. Lily Marsh couldn't stand him because his attitude, Hughes's attitude was simply to, to entertain, to, to make people feel happy for an afternoon. So a very un-Australian kind of approach. He looked un-Australian, these sort of Gower-esque curly locks. He batted in an un-Australian way. And he carried with him an un-Australian kind of sensibility. All of that, he ran up against that kind of opposition. Uh, and in the end, it made his, his own game untenable in, in that time. But as a player, as a talent, every 37 and a half in the end, which is a bit of a travesty. Uh, but he's my, he's my one. He's, 
in my list, he's my one in the Hooper-esque mould. He's my one who had all the talent and it doesn't translate to the stats. Uh, and there is, a, there is a romantic element to it as well because he's a real fallen hero. And you picked him as well. Do you, I mean, he, he, I think, fits in quite well because he, I just looked now. He last played a test match when he was 30, which is quite early. Captain for a lot of his career. That is quite a good instance, maybe, of the stats do potentially lie about his ability and what he could have done in test cricket. Yeah, well, there's, there's two things I'd just add to Phil's telling of the story, which is the, the tumult in Australian cricket as a whole at the time with World Series cricket, which he was sort of controversially excluded from at the time. <laughs> and then also, he, he then went on the Rebel Tour, I think, soon after resigning the captaincy, which is what then pretty much kept him out from then on and kind of uh, uh, cancelled any hopes of a, of a comeback. But yeah, I think because while Hooper, I guess, was sort of fighting... Like he averaged 36 because his, he had too few good days. I think Kim Hughes almost averaged 37 almost by choice in that sometimes he would just kind of, you know, uh, like he did so, so, some days he just decided to drive with one hand on the bat rather than two and just play one-handed cover drives all day. And would, it would come off a lot of the time, but it was just doing it basically for fun because he was having fun. So because he almost made the choice to average less than 40, I... I quite like that as well, I guess. But yeah, yeah I, I would say that there's massive echoes of Hooper here. Um, they were both preconditioned to extravagance. They were both playing shots to deliveries that uh, they should have respected more, I would say. And I can think of a number of, of Hooper dismissals off the top of my head where you're just tearing your hair out because he's so much better than that. I think that probably applies to Hughes up to a point as well. Um, just want to add on, on Ben's point, um, He's right about World Series cricket, absolutely. But Hughes chose to be loyal, in, in effect, to the Australian board by taking on the captaincy. Uh, and that put a lot of noses out of joint on the other side because he was seen, if you like, as a scab, as someone who wasn't going with the players, wasn't going with the Lily Marsh Chapel movement, but was staying loyal to the Australian board that were arguably underpaying the players at the time. So he became, uh, in effect, kind of a stooge in the eyes of the other players, um, uh, an Australian cricket board stooge. And that made his relationship with these players when they subsequently came back basically untenable. Um, a victim of circumstance as much as his own, his own diffidence and his own compulsion to extravagance. And sorry, just one final thing. He'd, he'd almost have had one of the great sort of Ashes victories in England if it wasn't for some free performances from Ian Botham, considering the you know, that what, what was going on in the side at the time, that, that he almost really took Australia to a series victory in that 81 Ashes, which obviously we know how it went now. But it's funny because it's, it's, it's both in Ashes and you don't, obviously history is written by the victors, you don't think about what, what that would have done to the Australian team and to him and his captaincy. But it's interesting to think what might have happened had, you know, both of them had one of those crazy hook shots or not taken the five for one, um, what, might have, what the Kim Hughes stories might have looked like. Yeah, absolutely. Joe, are you happy to have Hughes in the team? Well, yeah, I had Kim Hughes in my team and then swapped him out for my number five, who I've now lost faith in. Um, I basically didn't... I felt. I thought, as Phil's been saying, really, I thought having Hughes and Hooper was a bit of a kind of flighty middle order. Um, but I'm prepared to have Kim Hughes if, if Hooper's in the 11 as well. So we go back to the two flighty middle order players. Um, my number five... For the record was Nathan Astle, but actually I think his average of 37.02 is absolutely perfect, thinking about it. I mean, he was a player who had really good moments, but 
that is probably about the right test average for him. He was actually a better one-day opener than he was a test mid-order batsman. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm withdrawing my number five. Did play the greatest uh, innings of all time, though, didn't he? <laughs> he did, but I'm not sure. Does that show that his stats lied? I'm not sure it does, really. I no. think it's an example of what a good one-day player he was, which he was able to do in a test match that was effectively lost. I think it's yeah. probably... Yeah. I was just going to say, had you recently watched the, the full highlights of that innings? Because there is a, like a 20-minute video on YouTube of that innings that I've watched recently. It is, it is amazing. And the it's best thing is, because, because the game was dead as well, the stadium's pretty empty, right? So the, all these amazing shots that he's playing are just cracking around the stadium with a sort of, you know, the, as, as they do when, when grounds are empty like that, which just adds to the effect, I think. We got a top five then. Yeah, it looks like we got a top five. I think, yeah, you've all picked an all round. You've all picked all rounders, so we should have an all rounder slot uh, at number six. You've all picked Andrew Flintoff, but not necessarily at number six. He qualifies in both ways. He's actually in in a way perfect for this. He averaged under forty with a bat and over thirty with a ball. Um, we've we've talked a lot about Flintoff during lockdown. We talked about how he had that unbelievable. 2004, obviously 2005 as well. He had this condensed peak where he was one of the best, if not the best cricket in the world. So, uh, but I wonder, do the stats really lie? Because he, he struggled outside of that, that peak. Well, he, he had a slow start to his test career and he never was quite able to kind of claw the numbers back. But in terms of, I mean, he only took three five-wicket hauls and 500s from 79 tests. Not very many at all, really, for a player of his ability and if you look there was only one year of career where he managed to average 40 plus with the ball 40 plus with the bat and below 30 with the ball across his whole career so it suggests it wasn't like he had the odd bad year, bad year which dragged him down consistently he wasn't at the kind of absolute elite all-rounder level in terms of stats but then obviously as England fans we all know what he brought to English cricket um, so I think in that sense he's absolutely perfect for this team because he's not a player that can be judged by statistics. He's a player that can be judged by match-winning performances and, and what he brought to uh, the team as a whole. If you talk to any player who played with him for England, they will tell you what a fantastic player he was. Um, and he also wasn't just a big occasion player. He, he kind of put his heart and soul into it every time he played for England. Um, even when he was knackered, his knees were gone, uh, He'd do it every single time, even if the numbers didn't necessarily reflect that. So I, I think he's absolutely perfect for this, for this team. And I, I think that you mentioned about him not being able to claw the stats back. And I think another thing in his favour is that that was as much down to circumstance uh, as anything else. And so you go to that into consideration that, you know, the captaincy, the injuries caught up with him earlier than they would have with other players. If he'd another two years at his peak, he would maybe, have, he'd have got his, you know, his batting average up to 35, 36, his bowling average down to 28. And then you are looking at, one of the greatest all-rounders of all time in terms of stats as well. Cool. That was easy. Next, uh, wicketkeeper, you all picked the same wicketkeeper, Ian Healy. I must admit, I was surprised that he averaged as low as 27, I think. Was there anyone that, Ben, is there anyone that came close for you or was, was Healy the only one that you really thought about? No, it was, it was Healy really for me. I remember, I know Shane Warne has an odd thing when he's trying to pick an Australian team that he's played with because of his friends, but there was a, a moment when he was asked if he could pick an all-time Australian team would it be Gilchrist and Healy? And while he did eventually go with Gilchrist, the amount that he sort of like hesitated and numbed and despite obviously the 
huge differences in how good they were at the bat demonstrates how good a, a keeper he must have been and how much that might have impacted, you know, the rest of the Australian team's sort of success in that time. Um, so that was Shane Warne, really, that did it for me. Um, you can't really trust Shane Warne team selections, though. He goes pretty off the wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think, he, he's, you know, he can sort of be sort of neutral when he wants to be. I think in this case, he was. He did seem to be talking about it from a critical point of view and was there was a sort of a half a thought that Healy's ability with the gloves might have made up for quite a lot of that difference to Gilchrist with the bat. And obviously, Gilchrist was no mug with the gloves either. So, For yeah. me, he, he defined that era as much as any Australian cricketer. He came into that side in the late 80s uh, with Australian cricket at a low ebb, but they were turning it around under border. And Healy became uh, almost indelible to that border side. He, he became the sort of snarky, smug, cocky, technically brilliant wind-up merchant. And so much of what happened in Australian cricket from the 90s onwards revolved around Healy. Healy, Healy carried that age-old Australian arrogance, and I say that admiringly, in, back into their game alongside Border. Uh, he was technically the best keeper I've ever seen, certainly standing up, standing up to the spinners. He uh, is responsible for a lot of the Shane Warne phenomenon, without a doubt. He read Shane Warne better than any batsman out there. Uh, I can't recall him dropping a, dropping a cricket ball. And he made runs without very much ability. And he, he had an ugly style. He used to put his big bum out, push, pushed out towards square leg, a kind of peculiar crouched stance. But he always used to end up getting runs. He always used to get important runs. I remember the 93 series, that Old Trafford game, the worn ball of the century game. Healy made a hundred, unbeaten hundred in the second innings to take that match away from England. England lost that first game. And then from then on, as we know, uh, it was curtains. Healy had that innate ability to get under your skin um, as, as both a batsman and a keeper and a character as well. And he became, yeah, some kind of flag bearer for that new Australian era. Uh, and yeah, he, he's, he was, there was no other consideration. I had a look at Boucher's stats, but Boucher is a tick over 30 with, with the bat. He league superior gloveman anyway, without a doubt. The best gloveman I've ever seen here. Um, and one of the worst pundits. So, you know, he's in this... Uh... <laughs> um, but also, it's quite interesting, comparing it to Boucher, when Healy played, it was okay to average... 28 as a keeper, whereas Boucher played in the... He started his career when maybe that was okay, but he basically had his career at the same time as Gilchrist. Averaging 30 wasn't, wasn't really uh, as, as acceptable, I guess. And, and Boucher, was, Boucher was a much better batsman as well. I mean, that, that, that average should be higher, I think. When Boucher on his day, probably a better one-day batsman again than, a, than test batsman. But yeah, that, that's... That, that doesn't really reflect on his ability particularly well. But there are quite a few. Healy is the winner by distance, but there were there were quite a few for this. And maybe again, thirty is a little bit high for keepers of Healy's time. Um, but then, I mean, Rod Marsh is another one who who, who gets in there, played ninety six tests for Australia, a big part of that Australian side. Uh, and then more recently, uh, Prasanna Jai Wardner as well, Sri Lankan, who, who was a really good keeper, one of the best around at that time, and got four test hundreds. Same number as Healy in, in fewer tests, but yeah, these are just other names to to discuss beneath Healy. Was, he's the, was, was Jack was Jack Russell not close for either of you? I, I had him written down, but 
but I mean, not compared to, to Healy. No, not in terms of contribution to, to a test team. I mean, Healy was by far the cricketer I like least of that Australian team, which I think suggests how, how good he was. And as what Phil was saying, how good he was at kind of winding up England and, and being the, the heartbeat of that Aussie side. Quick shout out to Alan Knott, average just a tick under 33 across his career. Um, talking about what was acceptable batting averages for top-class keepers. Well, he was a world-class wicketkeeper uh, and was also a mightily effective batsman. On to the bowlers. Ben, who is taking the new ball in your team? The new ball? Ah, you've thrown me a curveball there. Uh, I guess it would be Javadel Srinath and uh, Safraz Nawaz. Um, but this, this, this is where the 30 thing really comes in because Javadel Srinath, by, you know, he's, a, he's a, a great fast bowler, right? I mean, one, one of India's greatest, the, one of the quickest of his day, possibly the quickest India ever had and, and you know, had, a, had a, built up a really, really strong body of work over his whole career and only just averaged over 30 considering how much he played in India is pretty impressive. So he was close. He, he was, yeah, pretty old with me. And then Safraz Nawaz was just for that, that almost that one performance really when he took how many wickets was in that in that one sort of you know momentous test win for Pakistan um but again I mean you can you can almost game the bowlers a bit because you can pick bowlers who either pace bowlers from Asia or spinners from somewhere else and then you end up with a really good attack who just happened to play in unhelpful conditions most of the time but yeah those were my two that's that's fair enough though isn't it that's Shows that the stats do lie. If you if you if you're a English team, England new ball bowler, you're, it's easier to average under thirty than it is if you play half your tests in India. Yeah, that's true. I guess maybe it just tells you that raw average is a, a less useful metric for a bowler than it is for a batsman, I suppose, because there is so many other roles they have to play other than just taking wickets at times, like especially spinners too. Like you know, you can. You can do a good job on day one taking no wickets. You can't do a good job as a batsman scoring no runs. Phil went for Srinath as well. Joe, you went for another Indian seamer. So here, Khan, why did he pick Srinath for you? Um, Srinath, it was a a real toss-up between those two. Um, I'm probably influenced by the fact I saw more of Zahir Khan. I caught the end of Srinath. Not the end of, but I probably didn't see that much of him at his absolute peak. He certainly wasn't rapid when I was watching him not the Zahi Khan was either but Zahi Khan was so skillful um, in terms of reverse swing one of the kind of first bowlers who not only could do it but taught other bowlers how to do it he seemed to have a mastery of it that a lot of people did it almost accidentally he seemed to know the kind of the actual method behind it um, lots of contemporary bowlers talk about his influence and, and how important he was to them I know Jimmy Anderson has in the past um, so yeah, it's, there are loads of good seamers to pick from. This I think this is the hardest bit of the of the team. Um, so I had Brett Lee was taking the new ball for me as well. And I think he's an interesting one in terms of a stats don't lie because I think with we're talking about average here, and I think with Lee, you're just you're looking at the wrong stat. I think his average is not really what what he was all about. It's his is his strike rate as a express strike bowler. That's the stat that you should look to. And there would be no captain in the world during his career who wouldn't have wanted Brett Lee in their side just because of the difference that, that he offered. Um, his strike rate is only just behind, marginally behind Lily McGrath and, and Thompson. So he's right in that bracket in terms of wicket takers. Um, so I think he's, he's quite a good example of, of, of stats lying here because we're potentially looking at the wrong one when, when judging a bowler of his type. 
Well, I mean, it's not an either or for any of these. Phil, do you have any strong opinions on any of the bowlers that you pick? Well, I, I, I picked Harmison for the effect that he had in that short space of time, but uh, I'm minded to, to veer towards either Zaya Khan or Brett Lee. I think, I think Zaya, Zaya Khan's an interesting shout. The left-armness obviously plays a part in this team for the makeup of it. But if you're talking again about the emergence of this Indian test side to, to becoming what they are now, that series in England in 08, was a, or maybe 07, it was an absolutely crucial series for them. They'd never beaten England in England before. And Zaya Khan was unstoppable. He was untouchable in that series. Um, one of the best fast bowling performances across a whole summer that you've seen from anybody, let alone a subcontinent bowler, um, bowler of pace. So I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea of Zaya Khan in there. Um, and obviously, Brett Lee speaks for himself. Uh, so I'm comfortable with either of those. I put Harmison in because, you know, I have a soft spot for him and we spoke to him last week. <laughs> but uh, yeah, either of those two, I can absolutely make a case for. I'd probably lean slightly more to Zaya uh, for, the, for the watchability of him. Um, and for the, for the fact that he'll, he'll do it for you day after day after day. Uh, but then, of course, Lee has that explosivity. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough call between either of those two. So I, I had Harmison in there uh, as well. So I had Harmison, Zai Khan and Brett Lee as my three quicks. Uh, for me, it was Harmison or Hoggard was the, the one I was weighing up. Obviously right, OK. So here, here, here we get to the crux. What is our selection here? Is Flint off at six or is Flint off at seven? Bids off at six at the moment, but we can change it. You, I know Bids you pick, you pick okay. the quite funky lineup, so that does change things. I was what well, I did. Yeah, you, you had, I, I picked I picked six batsmen and all rounder and three three seamers. How how that can't be less funky, can it? it can't well, be. Keep, your, your keeper was at eight. That's that's funky. Well, oh, oh, at seven. Keeper at eight. Three three bowlers. Two opening bowlers and a spinner. There's nothing funky about that. But anyway, anyway, we can, we can thrash that one out. Let's see where we get to. I personally, uh, I would agree with Phil in leading slightly to Zahir Khan over Brett Lee, partly for that 08 or 07 series, whichever it was. And also, I, I kind of associate Brett Lee with being part of that slightly declining Australia side. Um, so, whereas, like, you know, t- taking over from those, from the, the, the greats and not quite being able to, to live up to them. Um, whereas Zahir Khan was part of an ascendant India side, as Phil pointed out. Uh, with Hoggard, I mean, the, with the stats lying or not lying, there's the, the one that Phil talked about on this podcast a few weeks ago that I think is almost the perfect indication of this with Hoggard in that his record against top-order batsmen is as good as any England bowler has had, basically, which is why I would have leaned to him, although neither of those were in my team if we had to go for one of Hoggard or, Hoggard or Harmson, I would pick Hoggard. But, Going, going back to the, to the makeup of this team, if we're talking about the last 50 years of Test cricket, Fred at six and Healy at seven, not for me. You need another batsman in there. Well, I, I had another sort of all-rounder, I guess, at seven, and then Healy was also at eight for me, which I don't know if that Yaz classes that as funky or not. Um. <laughs> um, Joe, do you have any strong thoughts about the, the balance of the side? Are you happy to go in with just three seamers? Um, I don't have an issue with the, the, the... Well, I do take Phil's point. The Flintoff and Healy, six and seven, is, is probably probably a little bit too high when we've also got a really flaky top five of underperforming test batsmen. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
if Carl Hooper's at five, Fred's at six, <laughs> Beanie's at seven, then I'm playing against this team. Good game to watch, though. What a game to watch that would be. Um, yeah. So I think the balance might might need looking at. Um, so we'd, what would be picking an ex? We're getting an extra batsman in there. Yeah, and going with going with the seam attack. Or... But who was our extra batsman? We no, we we need to discuss that. We need to go back to that. We, we need to go back uh, to that. But should we settle on the bowlers then? So Flintoff's in. We need two more. I, I would take Zaheer over Harmison. Having picked Harmison myself, I would still take Zaheer slightly over Harmison, and Zaheer over Brett Lee by by a nose for the variety of that attack. Yeah, and I think we can come back to number six versus extra quick. I think also because also depends who the spinner is. I mean, yeah, let's get let's get onto the spinner then. Uh, I think this one was probably the hard decision in the team just because loads of really, really good spinners average over 30 and it's because of what spinners do. They have to bowl when it's most difficult and nothing's really happening. And, um, Joe, who did you go for? Uh, I went with uh, Abdul Qadir uh, in the end as, uh, as a leg spin option, which is always good to have on your team. Um, I mean, it was between... Vittori was a kind of third choice, um, but I thought he's not quite threatening enough with the ball compared to Kadir or Habajan Singh was the other one I was weighing up. Their, their stats are very similar, actually, Habajan and Kadir in terms of average. Um, but Kadir was kind of really flying the flag for leg spin at a time when there weren't many around at all, certainly not many good ones. Uh, and I never found Habajan to be a particularly likable cricketer, which I would say certainly influenced my choice here as well. So... Um, Kadir, who could bat a bit as well. Can you feel we could have a decent yeah, yeah. S50s? Yeah, he could throw a bat. I don't think he made a test 100, but he certainly, certainly influenced games down there, here and there. I, I went with Kadir as well. Uh, and again, it was probably between those two. I had a look at Mushtaq Ahmed's career, which, which is a slightly odd one. I mean, he took 180 wickets in 50-odd games. Um, he had his days in the sun for Pakistan. But when you look at what he did in England, in supposedly unfair, not unhelpful conditions you can't imagine he wouldn't have had a, a far more loop, fruitful career for Pakistan if they'd just stuck with him through those latter years when he was into his 30s um, there were some issues off uh, away from the game um, with him which I think uh, didn't didn't help him when he came to Pakistan uh, but yeah I considered him as well Danish Canaria as well dare, dare we mention him what you know, was he, the problem with Mushtaq towards the end you had the other Mustaks, Saklane, at the same time, and with you got Wazi and Wakar, Shweb, don't really have space for both all the time. Yeah, there was an element of that. There was also elements uh, off the pitch as well regarding attitude and so on that Mushtaq himself, Mushtaq Ahmed himself, has acknowledged. Um, but yeah, I think Abdul Qadir, as Joe said, he was he was a lone lone ranger really back in the eighties, um, and Pakistan were briefly the number one Test side in the world at that time. Imran Khan dealt with him beautifully. Um, Gower, in fact, on this on this show, yeah, said Kadir was the best spinner he ever faced. Um, Fifteen five wicket hauls and and five ten wicket matches. You're doing what a spinner has to do there. You're winning games when it's expected that you go and win them. Uh, and great to watch as well. A real sort of firecracker of a cricketer. Um, so yeah. Absolutely no doubt about it. Kadir in there at number 10 for me as your, your sole spinner in this side. Cool. Uh, ben, are you okay with that before we move on to the final? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no question that Kadir is a better bowler than Daniel Vittori. I guess I, it, it was partly the philosophical thing of what do we mean by the stats 
uh, stats don't lie or whatever, or stats do lie, because uh, of the spinner's question and, you know, Kadir averaging 30, I don't think anyone was really questioning that as a, as meaning he disqualifying him from greatness, whereas some people might with the Tory averaging 34. And then there's the 30 with the bat and the stat that Joe pointed out to us a while ago that the Tory has this century more player of the match awards than Virat Kohli from the same number of tests, which is... Uh, uh, pretty much the same number of tests, yeah. Or, uh, sorry, from fewer tests, isn't it? One fewer. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess so, but it's, it is going to make the team balance harder. And that, that also was why I wanted to Tory because I was uncomfortable with Flint off six, Healy seven. Whereas I think Flint off six, Vittori seven, Healy eight is a, I'm personally fine with that top eight. But yeah. I, I can understand Ben's thinking here. And I would, I would say with this ludicrous theoretical that we, we so enjoy during lockdown, we need a context. We need a, we need a game. We need a, a test match or a test series. We need conditions. We need to know whether you need a win or a draw, whether it's on a flat one, whether it's on a green seam, all of those things. Vittori is a good shout to balance that side, to have two spinners and three seamers with, in effect, three all-rounders in the, in the heart of that side. I can absolutely see the logic of that. Personally, if I was going into a test series, this was the first test against a crack Australian side, for example, then I would want six batsmen in there and Fred at seven. And I'd want, I'd want that kind of safety. I'd want my three seamers to be fit. I'd want my spinner to be bowling well. And I'd want that sixth slot to be taken up with a batsman rather than a bits and pieces cricketer. We also shouldn't forget that we've got Carl Hooper in our, our top five who can bowl some very handy off spin. So do you need that second spin option on most pitches in the world, probably not. If there was any justice, we'd be having Asif Iqbal in there. He wasn't even mentioned at five, and he bowls a little bit as well. But anyway, yeah, well, he, he was on my shortlist. I think if we're looking, if we're going back to kind of an extra batter, are we, to fill that top six? Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. So, I mean, Brendan McCullum's uh, quite a compelling one. It does, it was, going back to my Alex Stewart argument earlier, he was, as a pure batsman, he averaged over 40, but I think we're just ignoring that because that does suggest that the stats are lying, so that's, that's fine. Um, McCullum in that top six. Also, what a top six we've we've got there as well. Um, well, well, McCullum's in for me, Joe, as well, and he's my captain at six. So I, I gave him the armband in at six. Uh, I like that. I like him in there. Yeah. If, if Ben can concede concede it, uh, and we'll play Vittori on a Turner at the Oval at the end of the summer. All right. No, not ben, even. I think... I, I, the, the stats just do not lie with Daniel Vittori. He averaged 35 for the ball, 34 with the ball, and that's, that's what he should have averaged. I don't think anyone really would disagree with that, usually. Um, but yeah, but like... I, I think he, he had more impact to test cricketer than an average of 30 with the bat and 34 with the ball sort of indicates is the thing for me. Uh, you know, as, as, as the, 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 basically almost the, the one good player New Zealand had for quite a long time. Um, and just holding them together sort of carving himself into a, a capable test batsman from not really having, you know, much uh, capability at all to be at the beginning of test career. Uh, and right, also look, catching he, them for a long time. He, but, he, but, he can play at the Oval, it's fine. But, 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 but yeah, I, yeah, the McCullum one, yeah, this, the Stuart McCullum thing is interesting because I kind of saw Stuart's average of less than 40, not indicating how good he was with the bat, whereas McCullum's average of 36 puts him in the bracket of one of the best wiki batsmen of all time, which is what he is, sort of. But yeah, I, 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 I can concede McCullum sort but of... McCullum, the... McCullum kept wicket in a much lower percentage of test matches than Stuart, considerably so. 
I think you can look you can look at McCullum as a pure batsman more easily than you can Stewart in terms of their their Test career. I think. Okay. All right. Fine. Yeah. Happy. Happy to concede that. And there's, there's not, also there's not a huge amount of other batsmen to to throw in there as well. Um, I, I mean, had... Nasser was another one. Can I do some honourable mentions? Go for uh, it. So I sort of briefly considered Habibul Bashar. Not in terms of a quality of cricketer, really, to get into this team, but because, uh, I mean, without him, the start of Bangladesh's sort of te- life as a test team would have been sort of even more horrible than it was. And he was another one of these who, you know, never conversed any of his half centuries. But really, when you're a team trying to make your way, you'd rather a guy who's making 60 and saving you from embarrassment than a guy who's sort of getting a 100 every once in a while. Don't, uh, don't talk about saving yourself from embarrassment, Ben. All right, just, just moving on. <laughs> the, the, the other one, this is probably a, a more sensible chat, was Ravi Shastri. Yeah, um, I thought him. Yeah. Who sort of had to do a lot of roles at a lot of different times and had a, a very, very good record as an opening batsman. And when he was a, a frontline spinner, also managed to do a good job as a, as a spinner. But because he was sort of a part-timer at some points and a tail ender at some points, his averages both sort of ended up in the, in the wrong place. Um, Honourable mention to Alan Lamb. As well, average 36, which was lower than I, I was expecting. Uh, feast or famine kind of player, but three three Test hundreds against the West Indies in the in the height of their their greatness, uh, offset by being unable to play the turning ball in various conditions, of course. But but Lamb, Lamb was another one that I you know I, I briefly considered. Uh, but Joe's right that there aren't there aren't that many that you can really hang your hat on who averaged under 40 over a long period of time. Um, there's many who Hooper-esque should have maybe averaged a little bit more than they did. Um, you know, I mean, Mike Gatting is another one. You throw it in there, you know, Gatting barely averaged 33. When you think, you know, he's in, he was an England Ashes winning captain and so on. Uh, but yeah, you, you are moving towards that bracket of, of, barely adequate ordinary test cricketers you know when you fall down the list so at, at the risk of opening a can of worms how about Hansi Kronje as well uh, I thought him I looked yeah. at him very closely in terms of the influence he had on his country's cricket before he had his players yeah. <laughs> Jesse is a captain candidate Joe <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, <laughs> perhaps not um but Early, early days as well. I mean, he was a he was a really top quality batsman. He he took Shane Warne apart, didn't he, in a in an early test early test match. Um, real aggressive. I, I think I think that him trying to defend Devon Malcolm at the Oval from behind the umpire at square leg probably discounts him slightly. <laughs> uh, Speaking of, I consider Devon Malcolm for this team. Yeah, uh, so an uh, average of thirty seven, Ben. I know. <laughs> I his his first ever test match. I found out today. He bowled 44 overs in the first innings, which is more than Stuart Broad has ever bowled in his test career in innings. Uh, but, you're, you know, you're sort of you're quickest England bowler has been in sort of a generation and you just do that to him first time out. It's just... In Australia with 329 for naught at the end of the first day. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming. Phil and Joe are surprised that neither of you suggested Javed Omar and Mohamed Ashraful. <laughs> Uh, well, we do have a team. Athens, Stewart, Gomes, Hughes, Hooper, McCollum, Captain, Flintoff, Healy, Zahir Khan, Kadir and Srinath. Good team, definitely. Uh, sorry, McCollum, Captain? Is that because Joe had Atherton? But um, I, I I think have, yeah, I'd have McCollum. 
that was when I didn't have the column in my team. Yeah, happy with that. Excellent. Excellent. Cheers, guys. This has been the Cricket Weekly Podcast. Enjoy the show, table friends, and if you're feeling extra kind, why not leave us a five-star review on the podcast? Podcast Network.